Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I am your host with the most, the captain, and with me as always, say hello to my little friend. It's good to see you, and it's good to be seen. <laughs> you see what we did there? We we reversed it, and we're surprisingly horrible at each other's parts. I think I'm worse. I think it took it, the captain like a million tries. Maybe, yeah, maybe three hundred. We are drinking Green Diamonds by Other Half Brewing in beautiful Brooklyn, New York. Four out of five diamond-studded bottle caps. Green Diamonds was brought to us by some members of our True Crime Garage family. Mm -hmm. First, we have Jill from Iowa who says, Cheers to you guys, and here's a six-pack. Next, we have Stephen M. Cheers. Stephen M. has set up his donation to be reoccurring, so each month he's sending beer money. Thank oh, you, Stephen. Love you, Stephen. Let's head east and say hi to Daniel in Southampton, Pennsylvania. Hi, and, Daniel. And way down south, we have Christy from Texas. Christy says, try 1554 from New Belgian Brewing mm-hmm. out of Fort, Co- Fort Collins. Sorry, It's one of her favorites. She also says she loves us and our jibs. Well, I say... Like your gym. And last but not least, we have Alex, a bloke from Bedford, England. He says, keep up the good work, and he loves listening while driving to and from work. Well, Alex, bloke man. Bloke. You keep up the good work and keep up the good driving to and from work. Cheers, mates. And if you want to throw a little money in the hat for next week's beer fund. Or go a lot to, of money. Go to truecrimegarage.com and click on the donate button. That's enough of the business. Yeah, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer, and let's talk some true crime. 
We are ready for part two of our interview with Don talking about Joseph Colombo. Mm-hmm. Just a little recap here. At the height of Joseph Colombo's influence on June 28th, 1971, he was shot while standing inside a press barricade at Columbus Circle a few hours before an Italian-American civil rights rally. The shooter, Jerome Johnson, was immediately subdued and handcuffed by police. Johnson had posed as a cameraman with official press credentials. Minutes after Johnson was subdued, he was shot and murdered while Mm -hmm. still handcuffed and surrounded by a sea of New York Police Department. Yeah, Joseph Colombo would survive the uh, the attack or the attempted assassination he would end up in a coma for roughly about seven years yeah and we we know who the shooter is but the who was operating the strings you know on yeah, the puppet what was the motive and who and was this a hit was this a lone gunman was this a hit was this a conspiracy by the government we're going to dive more into that right now. And the other thing, too, here, Captain, we got Jerome Johnson, who's killed after the shooting, and his murder's unsolved as well. So hold on tight. Here it comes, part two with Nick and Don. I agree with what Columbo was trying to do, trying to keep the FBI under wraps and holding them to the, the set of laws that they've created and been a part of, but... Don't we find this a little bit hypocritical because, I mean, he's not really a law-abiding citizen himself. I, I mean, if you were to take everything in hindsight and look at all of it, was he the person that was supposed to be uh, championing this cause? And, you know, the, the answer has to be yes, because who else had the balls and who had the courage and who had the people who had the people behind organized crime to make something like this happen. But yes, when you're, when you're looking at this through the mic, you know, if you look through, it depends on what scope you're looking through this. If you look at through the microscope, you're saying, no, this is not Joe Colombo's job. Joe Colombo is a criminal. Joe Colombo could have killed people. We just need to attack and go after people like him. And then if you do, if you, if you, if you cut him off from doing this, you know, did you have any community leaders at the time that would fight for something like this? So I think because what was happening to him and to his family and the fact that he may have been in this storm was the reason why he knew how hard you had to fight against these people to stop all this from happening. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's really difficult because you have to compartmentalize how you believe, who you believe Joe Colombo was. Can you be the type of person that wakes up in the morning um, goes to work, uh, collects money on a number racket, let's say, and I'm just I'm just putting this all out as an example. These aren't things that I know that he was doing, but uh, you know, collecting on loan sharking, and then going and to the FBI and saying, hey, you guys are, you know, you're you can't come and search my home without a warrant, and you shouldn't be wiretapping my phone, and you shouldn't you know have people sitting in a car watching people go to eat, and that's not what taxpayer money should be for, so. It's really, it's a, it's definitely a thing that leans into is he a hypocrite for doing this? Um, but I, I have to say that you know the reason that he's doing this is because he, I think he's he's a vic- his family is a victim of this, so he has to he has to do this. I think he was backed into this. So Joe Colombo decides to pick a fight with J. Edgar Hoover, one of the most powerful men in America. That takes some balls. Yeah, um, Joe had uh, had no fear. That was definitely something a lot of people had told me about him. 
Um, you know, he was short in stature, but he was very large in heart and strength. And this was a guy that would, he went after the, probably the scariest human being in the United States at the time above the president. Um, and when he did this, he did this with intelligence. Um, he knew that the strength of the people and the mob, meaning the folks, you know, like Roman mob could change things in society and, and, what really probably affected the FBI and, and the Justice Department was when Joe made an example and he marched 200,000 people into Columbus Circle and then rallied and took tens of thousands of those people to the FBI offices. And it started getting to the point where it was the crowd control was not even able to be handled by the police department. And Joe had to calm everyone down and send everybody home. And they started to see that you know, Joe wasn't just going after the FBI. He was going after them with a weapon that could not be um, could not be silenced, which was the voices of all of these people and the action of all these people. So Hoover, as big and as powerful as he is, he is only one person. And and after that rally, the first Unity Day rally in, in 1970, um, President Nixon had to have uh they, they made a, a speech and it was a, the attorney general actually john mitchell who who made the announcement on national television that the words la cosa nostra and mafia would no longer be used in any government uh paperwork or any government dialogue because it was defamatory against the italian american people and joe's crime cry for this but why he was fighting against those words so much was because he felt that there, if there's crime, there's crime everywhere. There's crime in the community amongst Latinos. There's crime in the community amongst the Jews. There's crime in the community amongst the blacks. If, if one or two people conspire to commit a crime together, well, then at that point, you have a conspiracy or you have an organization. And it seemed that the Justice Department only wanted to lock up, go after, and, and sit and watch Italian-Americans and mafia. And not only through the, the Justice Department, but also through television media. Um, we've seen plenty of films come out up until this point, and they were all aimed at the Italian-American community and, and mafia. And this is what people were being known for. Any person that you saw on the street that was successful, that had a, a nice jacket and a nice car and wore gold, or, they were mafia. They were La Cosa Nostra. And, and Joe had a disdain for these two words and just felt that this was going to hurt his community for anyone to be successful and take it seriously. So um, he went after Hoover, and he went after the Justice Department first. This is the biggest battle that he could have went after first. Um, he did this before he went after the news media people, but he was successful, and, and that was definitely – I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall if Nixon was having a meeting with John Mitchell and, and Ed, J. Edgar Hoover discussing how they needed to take those words out and not only take them out but bow down and tell it to national television that those words will no longer be used. Now, this will play a big part in the attack that will happen later, but tell us what Unity Day is. Unity Day was the rally that was held in Columbus Circle on 1970, um, and it was, the first one was in, in June on the, the 29th, I believe, in 1970. Um, this, was, this was what Joe wanted to do. He wanted to show the force of the Italian-American people. Um, he had been setting up lots of uh, picketing at the FBI offices and 
then they started to realize that they needed to make a bigger statement. So he decided that he was going to tell people to close their stores, um, have people take a day off of work, and they were going to rally. And for the first, you know, he had seen what the Sons of Italy had been doing, and he had seen what AID had been doing, and a lot of the Italian-American organizations. But he knew the power of the Italian-American people within the city. He knew that they were building the city. He knew that they were working in the education. He knew that they, they, they were such a strong part of the New York community, but they had never really organized. So he wanted to create Unity Day to unite all of these different Italian-Americans at one place at one time to show the strength of them in New York so they could be taken a little bit more seriously because the problems were that he wanted to combat with the Italian-American Civil Rights League went way beyond problems with how the Justice Department was treating criminals. They also had an education department that was run by Steve Aiello, who later became the education czar under Ronald Reagan. And what Aiello and Colombo were working on was the fact that with almost one-fifth of the population in the school systems, or I think it was even more than that, there was no Italian-Americans that had any administrative jobs in the education systems in New York as a vice principal or a principal. And they wanted to see some change. They wanted action, you know, just like affirmative action. They wanted to see Italian-Americans in positions of power um, so that they can, they can have a voice. And they, they also wanted to help uh, what was a, a major drug problem that was going on in the city for a lot of the youths. Uh, in Brooklyn, Queens, and Bronx at the time. And as Joe started to learn more and more going around as a community leader, he saw that if they could organize and if the Italian-American Civil Rights League could be a strong force, they could start knocking these problems out that the government may not be able to help knock out, but community can as a whole. And one of the major cases that they helped with, um, there was a young lawyer that was fighting, I don't know if you're familiar with the 69 Corona Homes case, uh, where they were doing eminent domain and they were going to knock down these 69 homes in Corona, Queens, so that they could put up school systems. But all the homeowners had told them there's this huge parcel of land that they can use to just build the school and you don't have to take our homes from us. And they did not want to leave, but these people had no representation. So there was a young Italian-American lawyer that was fighting this case, but on his own, showing up at City Hall and, and, and trying to, without any political power, he wasn't getting any leeway. And he went and spoke in front of the league at a league meeting and then they got the support of the league and they got protesters and they went down to city hall and they ended up winning the case. And that young attorney was Mario Cuomo who ended up becoming governor of New York later on. In 1971, there was that famous event that took place. Joe Colombo is attacked and he is shot. Can you take us through that day and any events leading up to that day? Yeah. Leading up to that um, was where a, a whirlwind of trouble started happening for Colombo. Um, one of the things was that Joe Gallo was released from, from prison uh, after serving about a 10-year sentence. And at this time, Larry Gallo, his brother, had already passed away. So there was really no one in that organization that could say anything to Joe Gallo to sway his opinion. And he probably had suffered from poor impulse control. And he came home and he was making it well known that he had a problem with Joe. He had a problem with his Italian-American Civil Rights League. And I think that he also wanted to hurt Colombo, probably a coup or some something to that effect. So there was a lot of um, there was a lot of things leading up to this day that um, were against Joe. And another one was that um, the league was bringing a lot of heat to the organized crime families because they started to see like, wow, a lot of these figures that are helping out with all of this 
we believe are involved in illegal activities. So I had mentioned earlier that there was a gentleman that mentored Joe as he was a little kid who was very close with Joe's father. And Joe continued a relationship with that man throughout his entire life. Um, that, that man was Carl Gambino. And Carl Gambino and Joe's relationship was that of a father-son relationship. And I think leading up to the, the Unity Day, the second Unity Day in 1971, which, which the shooting happened, that Carl had expressed to Joe that he needed to step down from the league, that he, he had chosen a path in his life already, and he needs to follow that path without bringing the attention of the news media. Because by this point, Joe was already on television shows. He was doing radio. He was speaking to reporters. And it was just, it, he was, while he wasn't he was getting arrested but not convicted of anything, he was in, in, in a little bit of a, a heavy situation with, with everything from the FBI to the, you know, the state investigators. So Carl asked him to publicly step down and, and leave this in the hands of his son, Anthony, and, and Nat Marconi to let them run the organization. And Joe told him that he would. And Joe was going to take a back seat and have his son and Nat Marconi run this organization. And leading up to that rally, the rumors were also out that Joe Gallo was going to do something to try to disrupt the rally. And it was definitely a, a lot of things flying around and the streets of New York and that day prior to the start of the event there was a gentleman Jerome Johnson who had press credentials so he was in the, the press circle right next to the stage and this is about two hours before the event started um, he had a Bolex camera and whether this weapon was on him or it was handed to him many believe I believe that there was an accomplice a female woman that was also at the event that day um, this German pistol, when Joe turned around, he pulled it out and shot it three times, hit Joe all three times in the back of the head and the neck, and Joe immediately went down to the ground. Um, you can imagine the pandemonium of about 15,000, 20,000 people in this, this small congested area of Columbus Circle, um, many of them law enforcement. The shooter was tackled immediately by an officer named Giuliani Schiozzi who smacked the gun out of his hand and then he was held down to the ground by about five to seven officers you had FBI guys you had um, homicide detectives I would even guess there was CIA there I can't confirm that but I can confirm New York homicide uh, police officers and FBI and within about a minute or two while Jerome Johnson was handcuffed face down on the pavement someone stuck a revolver to his back and shot him twice in the back. He wasn't killed immediately. He actually lived until he made it to Roosevelt Hospital. Joe was also taken to Roosevelt Hospital. And with these three wounds, you know, expected to die, they did emergency surgeries on him. Um, and he did survive. He lingered in a coma for seven years following the shooting, but it, the shooting itself was fatal. Um, he ended up passing in 1978 upstate. Um, and Jerome Johnson, again, he was silenced that day. So we'll, we never knew who, pro, who put Joe, Jerome Johnson to shoot Joe Colombo. Who was the man behind this? Because there had to be a mastermind, especially after I learned more and more about Jerome Johnson. This was not the type of person that would just walk into Columbus Circle and shoot Joe Colombo for the sake of. And, you know, in the book that I wrote, um, the, the final chapter, outlines four major theories that were spoken of 
um, on who would be behind the shooting of Joe Colombo. And I don't have a smoking gun, but I definitely have a loaded one because there's so much information that had been put out by the media at that time that it had no backing. There was no evidence to back any of the things that the chief of detectives, Albert Seidman, was saying to the public. And every other week or so, he was saying he was very close to making an arrest, very close, that he had sources. Seidman never revealed his sources. He never made an arrest. And even what Seidman was saying and who Seidman was saying was behind the shooting, the head of the organized crime task force, Dennis Holman from the FBI, was countering what Seidman was saying, telling him that this was not possible, that this was not that style of, of, of mob hit that he believed it was um, for a specific amount of money. And let me get into the, the money on that situation, because when Joe Colombo was shot, a few things happened, right? You have the pandemonium. Imagine this. There's three bullets. Bang, bang, bang. The, Jerome Johnson gets tackled. Within a minute, bang, bang, Jerome Johnson shot in the back. As the police are, are trying to secure a crime scene, what they could, the only thing that they could do with so many thousands of people around there was they grabbed the guns that were used. There was another gun laying on the floor. There was a briefcase laying next to Columbo. And if you look online, you, you can see a lot of these photos. Uh, Getty Images probably has them. Um, so when they went to the hospital, Giuliani Schiozzi, who I interviewed, the police officer that tackled Jerome Johnson and rolled with him in the medical vehicle to Roosevelt Hospital, he sat with Jerome Johnson in the room when they came in and placed a toe tag on him. And he also had these two pistols and these two briefcases. And within those briefcases, Schiozzi knew that there was $40,000 in one briefcase, and then the other briefcase had another set amount of thousands of dollars, a little bit less. Um, Albert Seaman came in that day, looked at Jerome Johnson's body, looked at Schiozzi, and he had his homicide detectives with him. And while Schiozzi said he never saw Seaman touch the guns, touch the money, when he walked out of the room, the money was gone, and that money never made it into the evidence lockers. And Seidman always said he knew how much the hit was for. It is my belief that Seidman knew how much the hit was for because he thinks someone walked into Columbus Circle and dropped $40,000 there. So Jerome Johnson would what? Shoot Joe Colombo in front of thousands of people. And I believe over a thousand police officers were there that day. Grab a briefcase and walk off with the money. This theory and, and what Seidman believes happened that day is very pedestrian. And I, I, I loved his book, Chief, and I think he's been behind a, a lot of great investigations in New York City, but this just never sat right with me. And this was also, you know, reading Chief and reading other books was one of the reasons I wanted to write this story and talk about Joe Colombo because this is a cold case. This is, we're talking 40-something years ago, this is an unsolved murder in the streets of New York. While the murder is solved in, in, in the pedestrian sense that, yes, Jerome Johnson is the shooter of Joe Colombo and Jerome Johnson is dead, we don't know the plan. We don't know the blueprint of why all of this stuff happened. And, you know, when I learned about COINTELPRO and I learned about Hoover and, and the dirty tricks that he was doing in the, in the government against our own citizens – Hoover had learned all this stuff from CIA and he had learned what we were doing in Iran and he had learned what we were doing in all these other countries with counterintelligence. 
and he was applying it here to the U.S. to make sure that our political system was not affected. So if there was any political dissidence, they had tactics that would go in to disrupt those organizations. And there's documentation of these tactics, everything from sending letters to communists that there was organized crime people that wanted to bomb their buildings to create tension between communists and organized crime people. And, and th these were all the things that Hoover was doing. And I, I have to think that if this is the stuff that I'm reading in actual FBI documentation, what was the stuff that was said and spoken about and done that wasn't printed on an FBI document? And, and this was a lot of the, the interesting stuff that I, I, I discovered doing the investigation side, which I did about two years of investigation and interviews before I even started writing the book. And I, I just had to believe that there was so much more going on for the, the political and the government and the FBI side for Joe Colombo's murder than just to believe John Q. Public's story that this was a power struggle and Joe Gallo hired a black person because he met black people in prison and Jerome Johnson shot him. And then Joan Johnson gets shot, and then a year later, Gallo dies, and that's it. Case closed. Boom. Let's move on. Wow. So let me get this straight. We have this attack. It takes place in front of thousands of people. Two guys are shot. They're rushed to the hospital. One of them dies. There's two guns recovered. And then the money, there's money, but it's lost. And Joe Colombo, he's a strong dude. Somehow he's shot. He's shot in the head, and yet he survives. Yes, he had shot in the back of the head. Um, one of them was actually more towards the lower throat area. Um, but he, yeah, he, he was shot three times in the back of the head and he survived it. So just to get a clearer picture here, we have two people that have been shot. One is the shooter of the, of the first victim. Are they both taken to the same hospital or are they both taken to Roosevelt? Yes. Both shooting victims were taken to Roosevelt Joe upstairs to ICU immediately to have emergency surgery. And as I was told, Jerome Johnson died either right at arrival or a few moments after arrival at Roosevelt. So Joe Colombo survives the attack, but his shooter Johnson is dead. Now Colombo lives for years. We don't know what Johnson would have said about this attack or who was involved or what the motives could have been for, for the shooting. But Colombo's still alive, but he's in a coma for years. Seven years after the attack. Um, seven years, and, and I wouldn't say that this was just a coma, because uh, as Anthony has told me, he had the ability to move his hands and fingers, and I do believe that there was communication that happened um, with him and his family members throughout those seven years, and there were many surgeries as well, so I'm... I'm pretty sure that you know th this was uh, um something that even people in the organized crime world and in the fbi were very afraid that joe was going to recover from this and and come out and you know he he needed for for a lot of people he needed to be silenced they needed this to be a murder they didn't need this to be a shooting that he ever recovered from because i i do believe that like a lot of the assassinations that we have seen from Bobby Kennedy to JFK to Martin Luther King, when we see a leader that has the control of the people and his opponents are trying to defame him and, and trying to ruin his name and ruin his credibility, and they cannot, and this is what was happening for the 365 days before Joe's death. The FBI and the Justice Department were going after him with everything that they had. He was in the newspaper 
almost every single day leading up to that shooting. And arrests were made leading up to that shooting like never before. But it, it was he was the Teflon dunk. There was nothing that was affecting his power amongst the people. And when you have the power of the people, you have all of the power. And, and this is what I would believe would be the breaking point for the Justice Department and for an organization like COINTELPRO and for Hoover to have to say, this man has to go. This man needs to be taken out, like the Black Panther leader, like Martin Luther King, like anyone that has power that they cannot tap into. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL Learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids 
that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with factors no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Don, do you believe had Joe Colombo been able to see who shot him? He was shot in the back. If he would have been able to see who shot him or if he would have not been in a coma, would he have been able to tell us who was responsible for this attack or what organization was trying to take him down? I know because I believe this this was the government. I think he would have known this and I think he would have I think he would have went for the throat still with the same tenacity that he was prior to the shooting. But I, I don't think that he would have had I think it was the plan obviously was successful because here we are forty something years later and and even after you know, Hoover had passed away and they learned about COINTELPRO and they learned about all the illegal activities. And the, I don't want to say his name wrong, but Senator Keefover or Kaufover had, had the hearings in 1978 where FBI members that were active in the 60s and the 70s had to come and speak about the illegal activities. It was before one of those committee hearings that seven men within a six-month period ended up dying before they spoke at those committee hearings. So we're, we're talking about, and, and I, I hate to put tinfoil hat on here, but this is very real stuff that has happened in the United States. And 
with our government and with the power, whether it be the military complex or the FBI, that, you know, we can't, we, we cannot show the blueprint. Joe could not come out of this coma and say, this is what happened. A happened, then B, then C, then D, and it equals this. And, and I think that's the biggest problem with, with any of the people that are out there today, that they can't believe any of these stories is because we don't have enough evidence but even even with the evidence that we see sometimes, we just don't want to be distracted with our everyday lives to look at this kind of stuff and believe that it happened. And I would say that that is relevant today with the situation of Julian Assange and Snowden. These people that are telling you your government is doing illegal activity on you, spying on you, and doing, and we're all just waiting for the next iPhone to come out, keeping up with the Kardashians, watching movies, watching football getting involved in politics arguments and leaving all this very real stuff alone. They're very good at keeping us entertained so our minds don't wander. Meanwhile, they're keeping tabs on us the whole time. Yeah, they, either, they, well, they either keep you entertained or they keep you injured. And how they keep us injured is we're either financially injured or we're injured by our health. And if, if you're not, then you're entertained. So it, it's either one or the other that keeps us kind of, let's just say, it's sedated by these drugs the drug of injury or the drug of entertainment. And, and with that, and, and then also the easiest tactic that any ruler uses on his people is divide and conquer. And we've seen one of the biggest divide and conquer situations here with this last political campaign, Trump versus Hillary Clinton, where you have this nation versus against each other, you know, and, and here we are I'm thinking there's going to be a change with what happens when we, we, I hope you know that there's really not going to be a great change in what happens. They're just going to, you know, it's a two-party system, and it creates a lot of uh, news media hype. And then here we go for another four years. I guess I'm lucky that I'm entertained and not injured. Your book presents several good theories as to what actually took place and who took down Joe Colombo. Could you go through one of those theories for us? One of the theories is the lone gunman theory, that uh, Jerome Johnson was this— uh, wandery kind of, you know, in the weeds human being who oh, wanted to be a filmmaker and just wanted to be someone that people knew his name. He wanted his, you know, five minutes of fame. And he had done all these, he was a criminal. He was, he was arrested many times. And at, at, I show evidence also in the book that it was probably, it's to surprise that he was even out in the streets and not locked up at the time of the shooting because he must have there there's things that he was arrested for that he should have gotten jail time that he didn't so um the lone gunman theory as i'm investigating that i'm starting to see more and more that there was probably someone in the justice department helping him along um and the lone gunman theory states that he would have he had plane tickets to travel out of the country and he would buy rent this bolex camera with two thousand dollars that he didn't have in boston a few days before drive down to New York City, take the Bolex camera in. He got himself fake press credentials, um, and he had this German pistol, and he goes and he shoots Joe Colombo, and he was either going to walk off or it was a suicide mission, jihadist. And, and I, I look at that theory, and I think this just, it just doesn't add up. And then you can, you can always go and pull the insanity card and just say, well, insanity does not add up. Insanity is just insanity. There is no motive needed. It is just because the man is crazy. 
But that doesn't add up either because he didn't make crazy moves. He wasn't a lunatic. He wasn't someone that showed signs of lunatic. He was just someone that wanted to be someone. He wanted to be a filmmaker. He had a lot of women that he slept with and used for different things. And this, this is not a lunatic. He was, he was a, um, a charismatic dreamer. So I, the lone gunman theory never sat with me. Um, the other theory was the, the Gallo and Gambino theory, which was that Gallo had gotten the blessing from Carl Gambino to send a shooter into Columbus Circle and kill Joe Colombo. Now, with with this theory, the, the holes that are in it, and that's what I, instead of saying why the one theory works more than the other, mine was kind of the analyzation of taking away why this doesn't work. And the, the first thing that I, I noticed about the Gambino-Gallo theory was just that the commission, let's say, you know, the Organized Crime Commission, they would sanction hits. And if, if Gambino was sanctioning Joe Colombo to be murdered in Columbus Circle in front of 20,000, this is against what the commission does. They put a law into effect um, after the Castle Limerida Wars that mob murders would not be public murders anymore. And you could see, if you look throughout history, that people were shot in a bar. People just disappeared. There was no more public display of murder until the 1990s when um, Paul Castellano was shot in front of Spark Steakhouse because John Gotti wanted to bring back the old school style of murder. Now, even that in itself, a public display of murder, is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about Carl Gambino commissioning Joe Gallo to commission a non-organized crime figure, Jerome Johnson, a black man, to go into Columbus Circle with a gun. We don't know what this guy's marksmanship is like and shoot this gun with 20,000 people standing around, including the women and children of organized crime people and anyone in the Italian-American community and police officers. So for someone who is respected and, and probably goes down in history as one of the smartest organized crime leaders in our history, Carl Gambino, for him to be involved in this plot, I cannot believe it. I just, I can't think something's like, like that. Sure, it just doesn't add up. And not only me, but... This is where the FBI, um, the FBI leader, Daniel P. Holdman, was challenging uh, Albert Seidman about the murder. So there's, there's a lot of stuff with that theory that just didn't add up to me as well. There's got to be a second motive here. I mean, Colombo does not strike me as the kind of person that's very hard to get to. I mean, he's very public. He's out there all the time. Why does this crime, why does this murder have to take place in front of thousands of people? I mean, is is there a second motive behind making it a public murder? Well, now I'll go and I'll just ask you and I'll ask the listeners out there, where have we seen this before? You know, again, if, if this is an organized crime and, and the, the organized crime figures want to see Joe Colombo silenced, they're going to do this the way that they've silenced other leaders and organizations as well. And they're just going to make him disappear. And with the, the Gallo motive, and, and um, there's a book out there called The Five Families by Pete the Greek Theopolis. And I, I actually, in my book, you can read a lot about what I'm going to cite from that book as well. The Gallos were just as surprised that Joe Colombo was killed, Joe Gallo was, and his, his, his crew that day as well, because they were plotting to kill him. And they actually made an attempt two times before Unity Day to kill Joe Colombo. 
And they wanted to kill him, but they wanted to kill him in the style that someone was killed before, where it was like, you know, he was shot on a street, he was shot on the way home. You know, you find, you, you scope him out and you find out what his routine is. You find out what's the clean, they want to do a clean hit. They want to make sure, because remember, these organized crime people, they, they wanted to make sure when they killed someone, he was dead. So sending in a black shooter that you don't even know how this guy holds a pistol in to kill a man in front of 20,000 people surrounded by police officers, not knowing how his nerves are, it just does not add up. But if we go back and we look, like you said, the second motive, this is polarizing. To kill Joe Colombo to make a statement to the Italian-American community. You kill him at Unity Day in front of all of these people, national headlines, it's on the TV news every single night. Now you just, it's, that's ethnic cleansing. This is, this, we are destroying everything that he has built up into this day, and we are telling people or any leader who thinks he's going to be the next Joe Colombo, this is the fate of your community. This is the fate when you don't do things according to I want to say status quo, but when you don't, you know, you don't do things um, in the way of the political system that we have in place for you. Making this murder take place in front of thousands of people, it kind of puts the, it hands the shooter and the guilty party to the masses on a silver platter. It really, it really just kind of solves it and wraps it all up for the rest of us. For It causes us to believe that what we saw is real. Yes, because there's really, you know, who, what plan is in place? And again, I, I have to say that the only plan that could be in place that Jerome Johnson felt he was going to get out alive was if he was in cahoots with, with law enforcement. And he had an FBI agent telling him, look, you're going to go in there. You're going to shoot this guy. We're going to cuff you. We're going to throw you in the back of a car. You're going to do a little bit of time in jail. And then we're going to send you to live in Ohio for the re- or in Kansas for the rest of your life. So, yeah, you, you have to believe the lone gunman theory. But his psyche doesn't add up to the lone gunman theory. So it, it, it definitely was, like I said, a successful and well-thought-out plan by whoever put this into place if it is not the insane shooter who walks into Columbus Circle and just wants to kill someone and get on the news and die. Because, you know, if you look at all the other assassinations that were, were set up like this, all we ever get is, is breadcrumb trails. We never really get to where, you know, from JFK, Martin Luther King, we just, we get breadcrumb trails. We get stories that have changed. We get so many things that you can, you know, it, it depends on how you perceive the conversations <laughs> because they're all hearsay. We don't know these conversations that have happened behind closed doors with the people that were involved. All we get is a story that is told to us. And it's the same thing here in the Colombo shooting. We, we have a story which is made up of multiple stories, which is made up of multiple motives. But if you were to look at the government side and the CIA side, you know, they win in so many different ways with this shooting. They put a muzzle on the Italian-American community. They place the blame on Joe Gallo and organized crime, which allows them to appropriate more funds to fight organized crime because it went to the street into a public display then they create a war amongst the mobsters because you have the Columbos versus the Gallows again, and that's going to create a street war, which again appropriates more money to fight organized crime, bigger government. So the, the same things that Joe was saying was happening, they kind of just said, oh, really, you don't like this? Well, let's pump steroids into it and let's make it even bigger than it was before. Let's make the, 
let's make what we're doing blatantly obvious, but we're going to use the evidence of this war and the evidence of this shooting as our platform to do all of this. And if you take that micro archetype and you say, well, where has government done this before? Look at Vietnam. Look at any false flag operation that had happened. And in the book, if you read back, there are so many small stories leading up to the shooting that show the evidence of what was like a false flag, where they plant evidence into a crime scene so they can get a grand jury hearing. With the grand jury hearing, they know they can get these men into a room, get indictments for small, you know, they, they would use all of these small inciting incidents to create what they needed and to make it put it on a platform on a bigger scale and, and allow them to get the funds so that they can make more arrests so they can make the government bigger and bigger. Joe Colombo's in this coma for seven years. Now, how does he pass away? Do Is this a pull the plug situation or does his health take a turn? A, po- a post, there was a surgery and um, the complications of that had led to his death in 1978. So there were, there were many before, but, um, it was it was at the point where there was, you know, as time grew, I think there may have been more medical advancements on different things that they can do to try to because this is neuro, this is in the bullet in the brain, and um, I, I think it was just complications after the surgery that caused them to fail, where there was no actual plug to pull or anything. You were able to write this book with the help of his of Joe's oldest son Anthony and the Colombo family. Could you talk about Anthony and the Colombo family? <laughs> He is definitely his father's son, um, you know, and, and as he's telling me and describing his father, I'm seeing it in him. And especially when I think of anything that would be family related, um, Anthony is still married to his childhood sweetheart. Uh, he has a very close relationship with all of his children. Um, so he, as the leader of the household and, and a person that is so family orientated, he adopted all of that from his father. And I, I think that uh, Joe learned that probably from his father. And this the tradition of family uh, never left the Columbos. It's when it came from Anthony and Joe Columbo and then Anthony, who I worked with. Of course, they're named after you know their father, the first son. Um, so, yes, a lot like his father and definitely a leader. Um, his, his leadership qualities as a boy even was recognized by his father and why his father appointed him to be the leader of uh, the vice president of the Italian American Civil Rights League. He wanted Anthony to work in politics and he, I think he was priming him for that with the league and introducing him to politicians at a very young age and, you know, pushing him right into public speaking. Uh, Anthony has had so much media experience at a very young age that this this is only because of the identity of his father that lives in him. So I, I definitely say there's a lot of comparisons between Joe and his son. Was there any apprehension on your part going into this? You are writing a book that's dealing with a powerful event that could implicate some powerful organizations. You know, we have the FBI and the the crime families. Was there any apprehension on your end? Um. I think you don't, there's no real line that you cross going into something like this. Like this is definitely something I'm passionate about and I'm passionate as a writer and I believe stories need to be told no matter how graphic, no matter um, how how popular they are or unpopular they are. So I think you, you know, as this story happened and, you know, in the beginning, 
do I believe the FBI did it? You know, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm just in the shallow end of the water. All of a sudden, you end up and you're in the deep end with what you're saying, which is, yeah, there's some real heavy people and some big players involved in the story that I'm telling. And you don't really respect it in the beginning, but then once you're in it, you have to have the same respect for storytelling uh, as you do or just, you know, go uh, swing a hammer or get behind a desk and do something else. So I, I think that uh, I just it just came to be what I wa- what I wanted to tell and keep telling. So I didn't have any apprehension in the beginning, but I definitely felt the the gravity of the situation as I got further and further. Well, I want to thank you, Don, for coming on the show and talking about your great book, Columbo: The Unsolved Murder. Nick, I, I appreciate you. This was great, and I, I hope I did well for you and for the show. And uh, I really appreciate you making you picking this and making time for me. All right, a big thank you to Don for taking the time out and talking with Nick for the show. This is really interesting. The crime family, the whole five crime family thing is is very uh, fascinating to me. And then this whole case in general, I mean, you have possibly a lone gunman, and that he's killed right after. It's very similar to like a, a Kennedy assassination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we you know we heard Don talking about the different conspiracy theories, right? But he really only went into one of them, the lone gunman theory that he went into de- to detail about. Uh, of course, that doesn't seem like super likely, right? Because we have the shooter who's killed immediately afterwards. And that makes sense because, you know, the re- retaliation from Joe Colombo's guys. Right. It's a, I mean, it's a public event, but, too. But what throws a whole wrinkle in that theory is the money. You know, why Why is there money? The money makes that definitely make a whole lot of less sense. Some of the other theories that he discusses in his book is the uh, also the Gallo theory. Uh, the general thought here is that Joe Gallo hated Columbo, wanted Columbo out of power, and when Gallo went to prison, he made a lot of connections and associates in the mm-hmm. African-American community, and that he somehow teamed up with them, and that's why we have Jerome Johnson as the shooter. Another theory is the Gambino theory. Uh, there's also the BRAT theory, uh, and BRAT stands for the Black Radical Attack Team. And of course, there is the FBI CIA theory. Oh, yeah, which is a very interesting angle. And I, I've been listening to this book on audio tapes. Well, I call it audio tapes. I guess it's audio books, but uh, it's definitely interesting. Something that uh, I've been diving into this week. And a real quick update here, uh, Joe Gallo. Um, you know whether or not Joe Gallo had anything to do with Columbo's shooting. Columbo would end up outliving Crazy Joe Gallo. Yeah, Gallo was shot several times in 1972 in a New York City restaurant. Uh, This is when a gunfight broke out. He and his bodyguard were there. They were attacked in between seafood courses uh, by several mob members. Crazy Joe Gallo was killed at the age of 43. So, of course, the recommended reading is... Columbo, The Unsolved Murder by Don Capria and Anthony Columbo. Um, And again... Two, this is this is Anthony Colombo telling his whole story 
about his father and his family to Don. Uh-huh. And because there's a lot of things that don't come out in the news about this shooting. You know, we hear about the shooting. We hear about the mob boss. But this is a guy that was a great husband. He was a great father. He was a community leader. Uh-huh. Uh, and he was gunned down. He was murdered. And, and the whole, he was also fighting for equal rights. Yeah. And the, the whole thing is unsolved. And at the time, at the time of the case, you have the the one of the lead detectives who has an opinion on what took place. And then you have the leader of the, of the, he's like the mob detective and they have two different versions of what they think happened and how it went down. So that that's cause to want to investigate this further. So check out Columbo, the unsolved murder. And you can do that by going to our website, truecrimegarage.com and click on the recommended page. And as you can see, sometimes we release one show a week. Sometimes it's two a week. One week we did three Quit guessing how many shows we're going to come out with. Quit <laughs> refreshing on your on your device no, there. No, don't and just, quit refreshing. Just subscribe so they're already there waiting for you when you're ready to listen. And so hopefully us putting out two episodes this week helped you through your work week and your commute because you guys mean a lot to us. All right. Now, you did the lead in, so mm-hmm. you have to do the lead out. Let's hear him try it. All right. Be kind. Be good. No. Okay. Try it again. What is it? Until next time. Until next time. Be kind, be good. (laughs) That's terrible. Until next time, be good, be kind, and don't litter. It's close enough, bro. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.